Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading together about the life of the Apostle Peter, which uh, we have seen all along is really a story about what the steadfast love of Jesus does to Peter. This is a, a story about what the steadfast love of Jesus works in him and what it calls him to and what it makes of him for the life of the world, and that makes it a hopeful story for people like us. Because uh, seeing Jesus with Peter gives us a way to see how Jesus uh, might be with us too. So this morning, the story that we're going to look at together um, just might have been the worst moment of Peter's life. I'm going to read from Mark 14 for us, verses 26 through 31, and then 66 through 72. Uh, It's printed in the order of worship if you want to follow along there. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them, but again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would, through this word that we have read and heard together, that you would uh, break through to us in uh, whatever places all of us are in this morning, that as we sang, you would give our jaded senses light, that you'd break through distraction or despair or apathy, uh, that you'd break through tiredness, sorrow, joy, whatever you have to do, use this word to show us how much you love us in Jesus again. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, culturally, uh, we have a thing for origin stories. We we really like origin stories. You know, like the the nerdy kid who gets bit by the radioactive spider or the, uh, the boomer college dropout who starts a software business in his garage or, uh, the little creature who finds a really powerful ring 
or the poor Brazilian boy who learns to play the beautiful game with a rag-filled sock. We love that stuff. We love origin stories. And it, it doesn't really matter if uh, they're fictional or if they're real or if they're a little bit of both. Because origin stories let us plot and trace somebody's life in a way that we can relate to or sometimes in a way that we want to avoid. I mean, I don't think any of us are uh, going to get bit by a radioactive spider anytime soon, um, but many of us still feel close to that idea of an anti-hero who has to learn again and again that with great power, <laughs> there comes great responsibility. We can relate to a guy who takes a hit for his friends and his family and even a bunch of bad guys, even if he looks like a dope doing it. Good old uh, Peter Parker. So what is the origin story for a guy who says something like this? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and be sober-minded. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into eternal glory in Christ will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. How do you plot the way uh, to somebody who can write with deep conviction that humility and sober-mindedness are pretty important Christian virtues? <laughs> how, do you, how do you trace a life that leads to someone being absolutely, positively certain that God is a God of grace, that he is a God who can even restore people like us and strengthen and establish people like us. The origin story of the guy who wrote that runs straight through denial. Peter wrote those things not as a theoretician. He didn't write those things as some kind of uh, speculative theologian. He wrote those things through the tears of his own story. And that story has left the church and it's left you and me with some very dear truths that lie at the heart of what it means to be a people who follow Jesus. And all of us, starting with the preacher, <laughs> would do well to learn those lessons again or for the first time, if that's where we're at. First, that we should regard our own selves and our own strength with great humility. And second, that we should trust only and forever in Jesus' pardon. Regard ourselves and our strength with humility and trust only in the pardon of Jesus. So the story begins in verse 26 with Jesus and the disciples singing a hymn together. I would have loved to have been there and hear the singing of that hymn. That night, Jesus had already told them that one of them was uh, going to betray him. He had given them a meal where he said the broken body at that, that broken bread at that meal was his body, where the cup at that meal was his blood poured out for many. 
I mean, there's probably no way for any of us here to account for the confusion and the growing fear and the apprehension that must have been existing among those guys. I mean, they can feel their pulses in their temples and their uncertainty covers everything else. It rolls over everything else that happens that night. So I don't imagine that when their voices came together, it was like some great angel choir singing psalms. I imagine it was like whispering, hoarse, preoccupied psalm singing. And then at the last warbly, off-tune, amen, Jesus tells them something that lands with a thud. You will all fall away. All of you will fall away. All of you. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. (laughs) You know, there's a lot that could be said uh, about what it is that Jesus tells his friends there, but I think the most striking thing about it to me is that there is not a hint, not a whiff of psychological disappointment in it at all. Jesus is not becoming angry at them in this moment. He is not frustrated with them. He is not haranguing them. It's not that Jesus can't or won't or doesn't feel anger or disappointment or frustration or sadness. Of course he can, and of course he does. Last week, Pastor David walked us through what happens right after this moment. When Jesus asked his friends to stay awake with him as he prayed, he asked them to watch with him as he prayed, and they would not and they could not. And he was sad, and he was disappointed, but there is none of that here, not any of it. Jesus is telling them what they need to know, not exactly for that moment, but for when things get way worse than that moment. With great kindness, he is preparing his friends for what he is coming. And church, this is what he's telling them. He's telling them that in the midst of chaos, there is a sovereign who will see things through to the very end. In the midst of chaos, there is someone who will see things through to the end, and their cowardice and their fragility and their self-preservation and their betrayals, that's all part of the story. It's all part of the plan. And in the end, all of that stuff, all of everything they have brought to the table, good and bad, it will be gathered up by that sovereign, and it will be used to make a story that is so beautiful that their hearts will ache and burn at the hearing of it. You'll all fall away and you'll all scatter, but later on, trust me, we will meet up back home. I don't think there's any way uh, that people like you and me could ever hear that enough. I mean, I don't know the chaos. I don't know the trouble that you are staring down. I know little pieces of some of it. But I do know that nobody gets a smooth ride in this fallen place. And maybe you don't even know the chaos. Maybe you don't don't know the trouble that you're going to need to face or your own weakness in it or your stumbling or your falling and sinning and doubting. You don't even know the cursing that will pour out of your mouth when it all breaks down. But here is the truth, church. There is a sovereign who has promised to everyone who follows him in faith that all of those things will be gathered up to make something beautiful. Something that the angels will lose their minds over when they see. Something that will fuel 
mighty, thunderous choruses of worthy is this lamb who was slain forever. That sovereign will gather all of those things up when the trouble is over and we will meet with him back home and he will tell us what he has done. That's the truth, church. (laughs) It's the truth. It is for sure. Because of the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And so my encouragement to you is to believe that truth and to take it with you every day of your life because you will need it. And maybe nobody needed it more than uh, Simon that night. Simon, you know, the one who says, look, Jesus, you, you can quote us all the scripture you want. <laughs> you, you can tell us a hundred places where it's written somewhere about this thing or that thing or the other thing. You can quote all the scripture you want, but I'm telling you, even though they all fall away, I am not going to. <laughs> Maybe you're right about them, and I've had my suspicions for several weeks now about some of them, but you are absolutely, positively not right about me. I will not fall away. And Jesus meets this bravado with a solemn denunciation of bravado. I'm telling you right now, Simon, before the night's over, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And that solemn denunciation from Jesus is met with bravado that is somehow shockingly pitched an octave higher than the first. If I must die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. St. Augustine, uh, the fourth century North African bishop, the, the great father of the church, asked this. Why should a person presume so much on the capacity of his nature? It is wounded, hurt, damaged. It needs a true confession, not a false defense. And that is a really important lesson in this for people like us, maybe most uh, particularly for people like us who follow Jesus in a culture that values the origin stories of self-reliance and self-making and steely-jawed resilience. The lesson for us is a proper confession and a proper humility that begins by remembering our true origin story, which included a fall that left us wounded, hurt, and damaged. And people who wound and hurt and damage. I'm telling you, if we walk headlong through life pretending that we are self-sufficient, if we walk headlong through life pretending that we are in no need of God's grace or his help or that we only need that stuff once in every great while, if that's how we want to pretend our way through life, it is unavoidable that we will cause a great deal of pain to ourselves and to the people around us. So many years on from this, Peter writes as a man who has come by his wisdom the very hard way. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and be sober-minded. 
But you know, Jesus has uh, no fight with Simon. (laughs) He has no fight with Simon other than the fight that he's about to walk into for Simon's good. He means nothing but good for Simon. He has already offered the kindness of his pardon. He's already offered Simon the kindness of his grace. It's all that Simon will ever need. After all of this, Simon, listen, after all of this, I promise you we will meet up back home. You'll see. And then they all walk to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. That is where Jesus asked his closest friends to remain with him and watch with him while he prayed, but they could not. That is the place where Judas came with a great crowd armed with swords and clubs, and Jesus is arrested, and that is the place where what Jesus said would happen happened. They all left him and fled. The sheep scattered And Jesus is taken alone, alone to the house of the high priest for a trial. And then Mark tells us something surprising. It's in verse 54, which we didn't read. Mark tells us that Peter followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was with the guards, warming himself by the fire. And I love that detail about Simon. (laughs) Because it tells me something important. It tells me he is trying. He is trying to make good on this promise that he made. I mean, everybody ran. Everybody scattered when Jesus arrested and don't be mis- was arrested. And, and, and none of us should be mistaken. So did Simon. He ran, but not too far, I guess. Not so far he can't keep his eye on Jesus. Not so far that he can't try to strain his ear to listen to what's happening to his friend inside. However imperfectly, church, however imperfectly, Simon is holding on to faith. However imperfectly, in this moment, Simon is keeping the faith as best as he is able. But as John Calvin wrote, it does not take a heavy fight to break a man. And in Simon's case, it just took this offhanded comment from a servant girl. You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. And in an instant, Simon dissembles. I mean, he he doesn't really deny anything yet. He just says what he hopes is enough to take the heat off and to shake this girl off his trail and maybe make her think that she's talking crazy. He says, "I, I I don't understand what you're talking about at all. tries to slip away then. He tries to make his way quietly away from the fire towards the outer courtyard, towards where it's darker, towards where the crowds are bigger and maybe he can hide. And as he goes, the rooster crows. We don't know if that registered with Simon. We don't know if he heard it or if he did what it meant. We only know that he is on the run and there is that servant girl again, hot on his trail like the hound of heaven. I mean, this girl (laughs) and that rooster, agents of a severe mercy. She says to the larger group that he's mingling with, this man is one of them. And that's when the denying starts. We don't know what he says, but he says, "I'm I'm not one of them. I'm not part of that group. But he has said too much now. His accent has given him away. He is clearly from the north country. He is one of those rough country boys from the north, and everybody knows it. Certainly you're one of them. 
because you're a Galilean. And then Simon. Simon, who had once wanted nothing to do with Jesus because Jesus made him afraid. Simon, who had been graciously lifted from the sea. Simon, the rock who holds the keys, the accuser who hinders. Simon, who thought that he could catch heaven in a tent and who caught a fish with a shekel. Simon, who could not stay awake. Simon, who said, if I have to die, I won't deny you, denies him. I don't know this man of whom you speak. That is uh, an open denial of Jesus. And the church has always had a name for what it is when we openly deny Jesus. We don't say the word very much because it's a fearful thing. It's a word no one likes to hear. Apostasy. Dale Bruner, who taught religion at Whitworth College for a long time, wrote that in this moment, Peter now has one God, and it is his own skin. And that's always the way that it works, church. When we deny Jesus, when we uh, fail to abide with him, when we walk away from him, when we leave him, when we make that... uh, terminal deconstruction, as we euphemistically like to refer to it these days. When we do those things, we don't become godless people. We merely switch the altar in front of which we bow. From Jesus to me. And that is uh, literally the oldest and most worn out play in the book. Ever since our first parents did it, we humans have been drawn to it, and that is the origin story, and that origin story always leaves us the same way, wounded and hurt and damaged. So how do you come back from that? How does one get restored from that? Well, I'll tell you how. We come back by the same strong hand of love that we slapped away. That's how we come back. Because he reaches down to enemies and prodigals and runners and deniers and deconstructors, and he is doing it forever. That is the truth. However far away we can go is not far enough to get away from the strong and gracious hand of love. And you never know what he's going to do to bring you back. Because all options remain open to him at all times, he might even make a rooster crow. That might be all it takes, like it did for old Simon, and he broke down and he wept. That's what Simon did. He heard the sound of that rooster and he remembered. He remembered what Jesus said to him and he remembered everything that had passed between them. He remembered who Jesus was to him and who he was to Jesus, and he wept. And that weeping was a token of his genuine repentance. Leo the the Great, who was the bishop of Rome in the second half of the fifth century, has a gorgeous line about this. He wrote, blessed tears 
O holy apostle, which had the virtue of a holy baptism in washing off the sin of thy denial. <laughs> and Leo is right. I mean, I, I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything, in part because we're going to look at it together next week. But things work out between Jesus and Peter. They work out. But they don't work out because Peter got his act together. And they don't work out because Peter did a bunch of good stuff to make up for what he had done. And they don't work out because Peter made a really good show of being sorry. They work out because Jesus worked it out. They work out because Jesus worked it out in steadfast love for Peter. They worked out because Jesus went completely alone, fully alone, to do what Peter and you and me could never do for ourselves. And that's the second lesson in Peter's denial for people like you and me. And I'm telling you, church, don't let its simplicity throw you off because it means everything. Trust always and trust forever in Jesus' pardon. Cling always to Jesus' pardon. By his grace he forgives, and by his grace we are brought safely home. Let me pray for us. Father, whatever uh, it is that you'd be pleased to do with people like us, please do it. Please help us to remember and take with us these lessons from the denial of Peter. Humility and rest in your pardon. Help us to learn even a little bit of what he learned so that we would grow up in our faith, so that we could be a people through whom you love this broken world. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.